Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode 51 of the Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. This episode is brought to you by my friends at Unsettled. Unsettled is a 30-day co-working retreat experience for entrepreneurs, creatives, freelancers, and folks going through intentional transitions. They lead retreats in some of the most inspiring destinations in the world, Cape Town, Barcelona, Bali, just to name a few. I did uh, Medellin in Colombia with them last year, and it was everything I could have imagined. Beautiful apartment, great co-working space, incredible community, and you get to be a part of their global community that they've created, and lots of incredible local connections and experiences. Go to beunsettled.co slash Nathan, and they're going to give you $100 off, so do yourself a favor, beunsettled.co slash Nathan, and prepare for one of the best months of your life. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I hope you're having a great week. And this week on the show, I have NBA basketball coach Alan Stein on to share how you can use some of the elite performance principles of NBA basketball in your own business and life. And I reviewed the book, The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. And not too much to report this week. We've just had uh, two of my clients in town from LA, which is something I'm doing more and more of this year, inviting anybody in my group programs or uh, one-on-one clients to come and meet me in different parts of the world. So as you may or may not know, I set off next week for a round-the-world trip for the next eight months. So spending a couple of months in Costa Rica and Berlin and Cape Town, sort of two and a half months in each of those towns, then lots of little travel trips in between. And so I'm inviting my clients to come out and spend time with me because one of my core principles of extraordinary life is to bring more adventure and excitement into your life. And I think there's so much that can be gained by just adventuring and having fun and traveling and exploring new cultures. And it was proven this week. My clients came and I sent them camping up in the forest. And then we went and did some zip lining through the, the canopies of Rotorua and then went trekking through the Mount Tongariro National Park, which is beautiful, and then sent them skydiving in uh, the center of North Island as well. And so it was just a really fun week. They got so much out of it. And we did a little bit of coaching, some personal coaching, some business coaching throughout the week. And now they get to go back fresh with a whole lot of new ideas filled with possibilities and, you know, back into the, the grind. So, yeah, if you want to be a part of that, let me know. Drop me an email. If you're not following me on Facebook, check it out. Facebook.com slash Nathan.Seward. Add me as a friend. Drop me a message. Let me know you listen. And if you're interested, and we'll get you signed up for one of those programs. And my book review for the week is The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. And you may ask why I'm reviewing The 4-Hour Workweek. It's been around for just over 10 years now. And I'm sure most of you have heard of it, if not read it. So why bring this book up now? Well, for me, this is the Bible. In terms of creating a life, you know, extraordinary life around a business that lights you up and not waiting for retirement to do the things that you love, like travel, actually incorporating them into your day-to-day life. The 4-Hour Workweek is still my Bible. I remember when I first read it, like it was yesterday, it was such an eye-opening book for me. And you know, this idea of lifestyle design, Tim uh, coined this niche, the lifestyle design niche, where you can actually design your lifestyle exactly how you want it, not be tied to a nine-to-five job, living somebody else's dream. And as I flick through the pages and go back through the book to review it for this segment, I'm just in awe of how many things are still so applicable. It's still a Bible for what Tim calls the new rich. I don't like that term, the new rich, but as we move more and more towards living an extraordinary life, living as a freelancer, laptop businesses, and and living a life that you love, this is still the Bible for those people that want to live like that. If you listen to Tim's podcast, you'll know the type of person he is. He's incredibly detailed and intricate in the way he breaks things down. And in this book, he really challenges a lot of concepts about 
you know, traditional things like finding your purpose and stuff like that, and just breaks them down to be a little bit more user-friendly, which I appreciate so much. One of the things that I got out of it recently when I, I reread it was in the section on automating. So Tim talks a lot about automating your life. So using virtual assistants and things to automate your life. And he's included in the four-hour work week the entire uh, letter or script that he sends to a new virtual assistant. And it basically lists out something like 50 or 60 points of how to handle Tim's life, how to reply to different emails, when to contact him, what to reply to specific questions that people often ask when they email him, which I just think that's, you know, if you bought the book just for that, just to see how Tim uh, coordinates his virtual assistants, it would be worth it. Absolutely incredible. He did a podcast recently, an episode recently on what he would update if he was to, you know, do the four hour work week again. And of course, there's a lot of stuff in there about testing a business using Google AdWords. I mean, that's not that relevant anymore. A lot of that stuff hasn't hasn't kept up. It's probably more about Facebook ads these days for business. Uh, so he said a lot of that, you know, hasn't kept up with time. But one thing I found interesting, he said the chapter he wishes more people read is a chapter at the end called Filling the Void. Filling the Void is about saying once you've got this business established, once you've got your extraordinary life and everything's working, you've got a good income, you're traveling the world, then what? then what do you do? When you've created all this time and space for yourself, how do you fill the void? And it's particularly pertinent to me as I you know, live this life that I'm living now, life that I love, travel. It's, it was a particularly interesting chapter. And Tim said that's the chapter he wishes people paid more attention to. And that's where the quote comes from today. So he says, in terms of filling the void, where to go and what to do, there's no one right answer to either. Use the following questions and resources to brainstorm. What makes you most angry about the state of the world? What are you most afraid of for the next generation, whether you have children or not? What makes you happiest in your life? And how can you help others have the same? So it's turning your intention, your purpose to something bigger. Once you've set up and automated your life, filling the void by using those questions to serve a bigger goal and impact the world in different ways. Fantastic book. Even if you've read it a couple of times, go back and reread it now and you'll be amazed what you pick out of it. And I'm excited to introduce my guest for the week. It is Alan Stein. And Alan spent 15 years as a high performance coach in the NBA Basketball League. He was the coach for NBA superstar Kevin Durant and also the number one pick of the 2017 NBA draft, Markel Fultz. So Alan knows a thing or two about high performance, and he's now teaching organizations how to utilize those same strategies in their businesses. So without further ado, enjoy this very personal conversation with the powerful Alan Stein. Sure. I'm, a, uh, I'm an East Coaster by birth. I was born and raised in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. in Gaithersburg, Maryland. And other than the stint that I did down in North Carolina for college, this is where I've lived my entire life, but very thankful that I'm extremely well-traveled. So I've been all over the world and had a chance to, to see and do some great things and, and check out some other cultures. But yeah, definitely a Maryland guy since birth. I've spent most of my life in sports and, and particularly around the game of basketball. Basketball was absolutely my number one passion as a child. I was fortunate to play a lot of sports, and do a lot of different activities but I always came back to basketball being my favorite and had been very fortunate to spend even most of my adult life earning a living in the game of basketball as a performance coach. And I'm 41 years old at present. And up until about a year ago, I, I spent my entire career in basketball. And a year ago, I decided to make the leap over into the corporate space 
and to take the life lessons on leadership and teamwork and on how to create culture and build successful habits that I had learned through the game and transition those over to the corporate space to now help companies become more profitable, to improve you know, their morale and culture with their employees, to lower attrition, and to really get things banging on all cylinders so that folks can work to be the best versions of themselves and, and really enjoy life and enjoy what they do. Fantastic. So you said you were well-traveled when you were a kid. What, what were some of the effects that travel had on you? You know, most of my travel didn't start until I was out of college and really was seeing where the game of basketball could take me. And I'm very thankful that basketball, as you can appreciate, is a global game. And the United States has always kind of been the epicenter, you know, with the NBA being here. So, you know, I've had a chance to, to do several gigs in Europe and South America and, and just really enjoy learning other cultures. I think sometimes that's to the detriment of folks in the United States is they think that the way we do things here is the way they're done all over the world. And, and I really embrace what other cultures offer and, and different ways of life. And I'm quite the foodie. I love food. So my, my favorite thing about traveling is experiencing new cuisines. But just again, the different pace and the different lifestyle, you know, Europe in particular, I was always fascinated with kind of the mindset that they work as a part of their life, but that doesn't drive them. That's not their identity. And, you know, cultures like in Italy, you know, will take an hour or two off for lunch to really enjoy community and enjoy relationships and being around other people. And it's not this incessant go, 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 grind 24-7 attitude that I think lots of times gets pushed here in the United States. And I've really embraced that mindset. And as much as I love my work and love pouring into my craft, I think being exposed to those other cultures has taught me to also slow down and appreciate that there's more to life than just working and that it's all about relationships and, and connecting with other human beings. A lot of people find it hard to believe that Americans only get two weeks vacation a year and half of them or something like that don't actually even take the two weeks. I know. <laughs> well, what's, what's crazy is it's so counterintuitive because – the more time somebody takes off for vacation or to pour into their hobbies, the more productive they get. It, you'd think intuitively, you'd think it'd be the opposite that, well, if you're at work 50 out of 52 weeks, you're getting more done. And that's actually not the case. When you give people a chance to kind of rest their minds and rest their bodies and, and recharge their battery and, and refuel their tank, they're actually so much more productive when they are working. Some of the most productive people I know will take five or six weeks a vacation every year. Now they happen to be entrepreneurs that are in a job that allows them to do that. But yeah, and, and same thing, even from a from a work standpoint. I mean, I try to take at least one day a week where I'm doing minimal work. I, I call it a digital detox. I just try to shut down and it actually makes the other five or six days so much more efficient and so much more effective. Yeah. In terms of creativity, which is required for, for leaders and entrepreneurs, especially nobody has their best thoughts when they're trying to be creative at a desk or when they're working. It's always when you're in the shower or when you're on vacation or when you're hiking up a mountain or something like that is when you get struck with those inspirational moments and creative moments. Exactly. So how did you get into sport and why, why was sport such a big part of your childhood? I've always been physically active. I've always had a tremendous amount of energy kind of bouncing off the wall. So, so very early, I believe as an outlet, my parents had me try a different sports, just something to do that was organized. I enjoyed school, but I never loved school. You know, I, I was never really that into art or music or science or some of the other things that other kids are into. 
it was always something physical with me. I always wanted to be running and throwing and jumping and climbing and, and riding bikes and riding skateboards and throwing balls and tackling people. I, like, that's just what I, I always gravitated before I was even conscious of what I was doing. So I tried a variety of different sports and have played just about every conventional sport that, that there is, as well as some of the more unconventional like martial arts and BMX biking and skateboarding and, and things like that. And for whatever reason, uh, as much as I enjoyed those other activities, I always came back to basketball. There was something about the game of basketball that I, I believed it blends your individual talents with being a part of something bigger than yourself. You know, it, it requires all sorts of athleticism from running and jumping to hand-eye coordination, gross motor patterns, again, like running and jumping, but also fine motor skills like shooting a free throw. It was just something about that game that I've always been mesmerized by. And, and, and I loved the fact that like other team sports in basketball, you pour as much into your own development to work on your own athleticism and your own skill sets to be the best player that you're capable of. But you do it in order to raise the level of everyone else around you so that you can be a, a more influential piece of the puzzle, if you will, to everyone else. So it's not an individual game. You know, you're rewarded by how the team does and pouring into other people, yet you do have finite control over how good you can be by pouring into yourself. And I think that combination just with the, you know, the, the pageantry of the game in general, is something I've, I've always loved. Yeah, yes, it's the same thing for rugby. Rugby is the biggest sport in New Zealand, you know, where I come from, obviously. And yeah, I remember there being a big campaign, one of our local teams saying that a, a champion team will always beat a team of champions. Yes. You know, and how much that's, how and that's very true. Um, and when did you move away from playing yourself and more into this sort of coaching role? You know, I, I've had lots of ebbs and flows, and I ended up being fortunate enough to play in college. I played, it was called Elon College at the time. It's now Elon University down in North Carolina, and really enjoyed that experience. It was funny. I, I've gone through a couple of different times. As much as I've loved the game of basketball, I'd be, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that there have been a couple of times where I've been burnt out on the game. One of those times came in high school, then one of those times came in college. After I took enough time off and got away from the game, always came back to it. While I was in college and, and playing at Elon, I knew that I wanted to be involved in the game as a career, but this is in the, the mid to late 90s. So there weren't really strength and conditioning or performance coaches in basketball at that time. They were very, very rare. And, and that was something that I was really attracted to. So not only did I enjoy and love the game of basketball, I started to have a very strong affinity for human performance for strength and conditioning, for improving athleticism. And, and I knew that that was how I wanted to make my living. So uh, even though it was rather uncharted territories in the late 90s, I knew it was what I wanted to do. So I moved back to the DC area and began training players here. Would still play occasionally, not near as much as, as I did when I was an actual player, for sure, but just was around the game 24-7. And I've really done that, you know, all in up until about a year ago when I decided to make this, this pivot uh, and I'm still involved in the game now. I'll always want to pour into coaches and players and try and add value to the game because the game has been so good to me. But it's just neat that now that I'm older and hopefully a little wiser, that I'm able to pull these amazing life lessons that the game has taught me and how they transfer and apply to so many different areas of our life. And it's not even just business to our, our regular lives. I mean, I'm the proud father of three young children and the game of basketball has taught me so many lessons that make me a better father. So if you're good to the game, the game will be good to you and it can teach you some really paramount lessons that can help you lead a very happy and fulfilled and successful life. Yeah, it's really, really fascinating. You, you mentioned 
your own kids, how important a role did your parents play in guiding you in life and in sports? An extremely important one. And my, my parents were very present and they were extremely supportive. They were the ones chauffeuring me around from from sport to sport. And, you know, I can vividly remember times in elementary school and middle school, you know, where I'd stay after school and have soccer practice. And then my mom would pick me up and take me right over to the dojo to do karate. And then later that night, I'd go home and, you know, make a couple hundred shots in my driveway for basketball and would do that all of the time. So they were extremely supportive and always encouraged that I tried different things. So for that, I'm, I'm certainly very thankful. And, and I try to do the same thing with my children. Even though I love the game of basketball, I certainly don't force that on my children. I just want to be very open and supportive and encouraging of anything that they want to do. Uh, and the neat part is, though, these lessons that I teach to players and coaches and to folks in the corporate world still apply to my own children. And and even if my children don't want to play sports, the same lessons would apply to someone that wants to be a good musician or a good artist or if somebody wanted to be involved in any other domain what it takes to be successful, the ability to create and sustain positive habits, you know, to be a great teammate and to support other people by being a servant leader. All of those things apply to every area of our life. So as I mentioned, that's why I believe it, it helps me become a, a more impactful and or a more influential father. And how does that, each of those pieces that you've developed, how many of them come from different sports? So you applied them in basketball, but was there a lot of techniques from martial arts that you brought into that? It's space. Absolutely. I mean, these, these things, and, and I've chosen to keep my niche in the basketball space, but I could easily walk out on any football field or to any dojo and preach the same disciplines and mindsets and habits and routines. They apply to everyone. And that's the part that's so cool is they transcend any industry in any area of life, whether you're just looking to become better as a person or looking to become better as a leader. If you're looking to be better at rugby or basketball or run your company more effectively, all of the same foundational principles are the same. Now, certainly the nuances change. I don't want to say make it sound like it's completely cookie cutter, but the foundational principles of having habits and systems in place that are positive, you know, guarding and protecting your time and living in the present moment, serving other people, those things transcend every single area of our life. Yeah, absolutely. Just trying to think back to, so you, as you're getting into it in the 90s, or you're watching basketball, where was basketball the sport back then? So I'm thinking it's kind of Michael Jordan territory or coming to the end of his run. That is exactly right. And that's that's where I think a whole portion of the world really gravitated towards and checked into basketball. So, you know, from a vocational standpoint, when I graduated college in 1998, less than one third of NBA teams even had a strength and conditioning consultant at that time. So, I mean, you fast forward 30 years to where we are right now. Not only does every NBA team have a strength and conditioning coach, they have an entire staff dedicated to performance. They have nutritionists, massage therapists, physical therapists. Uh, they do yoga. I mean, big business. It, it really is. And so it's amazing to see how far it's come. But yes, at my age now, as a young kid, I remember watching Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and, and the Lakers and Celtics. And that's what, where I started the love of basketball. And then right when I hit that sweet spot in middle school and high school is when anything and everything was Michael Jordan and the Bulls. And you know, he certainly transcended not just a sport, but pop culture in general. I mean, this guy was bigger than life and and arguably at the time, probably the most recognized human being on the planet, which is which is remarkable. So yeah, that certainly added to my love for the game. 
yeah, it's a pretty good start. <laughs> it, re- it really is a great start. You know, it's, it's always fascinating. I don't know if you've read Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. He, he, yeah, he talks a lot about timing plays a crucial role in people's success. So the fact that I was born at a time where the NBA was really starting to take off and Michael Jordan was changing the game and changing pop culture to a point where I'm graduating college where strength and conditioning in basketball is just starting to starting to evolve you know, I, I'm, I'm at a perfect age to have, have ridden waves, you know, that have that have allowed me to make this career in basketball. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting point. How do you go about starting? So when you leave college, what are the first steps you take to get into the business? You know, at that time, the most viable outlet was to move back here and be a quote unquote personal trainer so that I was in the fitness space and that I was in the gym. And my goal was to build a clientele of basketball players. And, you know, fresh out of college, I don't have any type of resume or credibility. So it's not like a parade of NBA players were going to all of a sudden start dialing me up. So I had to start, you know, at the grassroots level and, and started working with some high school players. Thankfully, the kids that I worked with got good results. I mean, they were running faster and jumping higher and putting on muscular body weight and it was showing in their game. So that certainly led to other opportunities. And, you know, about three or four years into it, I was able to convince the coach at Montrose Christian to let me be the performance coach for the basketball team. And, and that program is really what set it off for me. That, that program is where Kevin Durant went to high school. And I think six other guys that are currently in the NBA, Justin Anderson, Terrence Ross, we had some really good players come through there. So once I was able to be in alignment with these players that would go on to achieve tremendous success, that absolutely sparked a ton of openings and opportunities for me. You know, those kids were going to be successful regardless. I, I'm very thankful that I was able to be a small piece of their puzzle and, and add some value to them and, and help guide them and, and help them. But the fact that people would make the inference of, well, this guy does strength and conditioning at a high school that produces NBA players, he must be really good. That opened up doors at That's Nike. Quite helpful. It's very helpful. That opened up doors at Nike and Jordan Brand and USA Basketball. And then thankfully, once those doors opened, you know, I was good at what I did. So I was able to, to stay. I mean, it's one thing to get an opportunity. It's another to maximize it and to keep it. So those snowballed into other opportunities. And, you know, after seven years at Montrose, uh, I went over to another high school, the DC area, DeMatha Catholic High School, uh, which also had produced tons of NBA players, uh, Victor Oladipo and Markel Fultz, who was the number one pick in last year's draft are all DeMatha grads. So I was kind of able to replicate the good fortune that I had at Montrose at DeMatha. So doors continue to open. And as you can appreciate, people will perceive you as an expert based on the people that you're working with. I know in my heart that if I didn't work at Montrose or didn't work at DeMatha, if I worked at the smallest local public school here in the Maryland area, I would have still been a good strength and conditioning coach. I would have still worked on my craft and known what I was doing, but I wouldn't been able to get the public adulation that I was able to get at more prominent schools. So that certainly worked in my favor and again, opened up many doors. And then as I'm going through this, this is when social media starts, you know, you've got 2007, 2008 is, is YouTube and Twitter and and Facebook. And I was able to capitalize on those very early as ways to share quality information on performance training and was able to build up a respectable and loyal audience. So then I was able to share my message well beyond the four walls of the gym and definitely outside of the immediate area here in Washington, D.C. And that led to other opportunities. So again, going back to Malcolm Gladwell, perfect timing, perfect storm. You know, I'm hitting my stride 
with players that I'm working with right at the time these megaphones of social media are starting up. So I'm able to broadcast my message to a much wider audience and things really just started to line up. So very, very thankful for how time was on my side throughout my career. Yeah, so it sounds like it was the right place at the right time, and then you made sure you were the right person at the right place at the right time. Well said. I might tweet that later, man. That was perfect. Thank <laughs> yeah, you. put that out. <laughs> um, do you remember the first time that you were courtside at an NBA game where you kind of knew that you were in the inner circle? You know, from an NBA standpoint, and this is most of what I've been able to do, I've worked with dozens of NBA players, but I worked with them before they were NBA players. I had a chance to work with them when they were younger and in high school, and then they materialized into NBA players. So uh, I never really hung my hat on working with current NBA players. Because I'm a relationship guy and I always kept in close touch and had friendships with the players I worked with, certainly was able to, to be able to go to a slew of games. And yeah, sitting down courtside and seeing a game, it's eye-opening for a couple of reasons. One, as much as I enjoy watching games on TV, it's nothing like having your feet actually on the hardwood when mm. you see up close and personal how big and strong and fast these guys really are. You know, when you're watching on TV from a distance, you don't really appreciate when somebody's 6'9", 270 pounds. They just look like a person on the court until you're there next to them. I mean, I'm 6'1", 180. I'm, I'm bigger than the average male and I'm dwarfed by these guys. And you see how hard they play and how fast they run and you see how much contact they take going to the basket. It's really an eye-opening experience for one. And then you also realize too, when you're up close and personal with these guys, they're people. I know that sounds almost, it sounds almost condescending to say that, but we admire these folks from afar and it's almost as if we look at them and put them on a pedestal like they're just icons. They're human beings. They have feelings. They have moods. They have emotions. They have good days. They have bad days. They have pressures that that quote unquote normal people like you and I can't even comprehend because of their fame and the money they make. It's very eye-opening. And you also have to realize too that as much as they love the game, basketball is their business. That is their vocation. That is their work. You know, some people choose to to drive and sit in a cubicle and type at a computer. These guys are fortunate enough to be able to go play the game of basketball to earn their living. So it's so important that once I was kind of in those inner circles that I always remembered that, that, you know, hey, one, this is their business and two, they're people, you know, they're, they're husbands and fathers and they have feelings just like everybody else. So treat them like people. And again, I know that may sound like I'm being patronizing, but there's so much truth to that. And I believe that one of the reasons I've been able to maintain good relationships with those guys is because I've always cared about them as people, not as basketball players. There's a big difference. I mean, I, I would care about those guys regardless of who they were. If they retired tomorrow morning, that wouldn't change how I felt about them or the relationships we've had or the good fortune that I'd wish upon them. I think when so many people are coming at them, wanting stuff from them, they really value relationships like that. Yeah, and just a basic human connection. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. It's not, you know, we don't get to get, see that perspective very often, like you say, as spectators, whether it's uh, global icons or sports people or Hollywood stars or something like that. You forget that they are people and that they, yeah, they're just doing their best day to day as well. Exactly, which means we need to extend more grace, you know, and now everybody's in a fishbowl with, with social media. So while certainly there are, are actions that are completely unacceptable, but when athletes or people of fame, you know, they say the wrong thing or they do the wrong thing, it's not excusing that behavior. It's not accepting it. 
but it's okay to have some grace and say, hey, there have been some times in my life where I've been in a bad mood. And if there was a microphone or a camera in my face, I probably would have said the wrong thing too. Let's not judge these folks considering that eyes are on them 24 seven. And that's what's crazy is they can live the most perfect and pristine life all of the time. And then one time they say the wrong thing to the wrong person and it's caught on video and all of a sudden they're, they're being blasted. Got to remember they're, they're human. They're at fault. They're going to make mistakes just like all of us. It's just all of their mistakes are broadcast in front of the whole world. And most of them are young guys, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And do you remember some of the mistakes that you've made along the, the way? Are there anything that, you, that stands out as being a bit of a cringeworthy moment? I, I've certainly had plenty. I mean, I make mistakes every single day of my life. I'm thankful that most of the mistakes I've made, I still made of sound mind and body when I made them using the best information that I had at hand. Hindsight is always 2020. So yes, there's a million things I could look back on and go, man, I really should have done that differently. But at the time, I, I certainly did what I thought was best. You know, from a, uh, a philosophical standpoint, you know, there have definitely been a, a few things to my coaching and training that I've changed positions on. And it's because I, I try to have an open mind. You know, if there's a better, more efficient way to get a result, then I want to be open to that. And that's probably the biggest mistake I made early in my career as I was not very open. You know, I, like a lot of 20 year olds, I thought I knew everything. I thought I already had all the answers and this is the philosophy I have. This is the way that's best to train. And if you disagree, you know, we'll argue till the sun goes down. And as I got older and wiser, I realized that's, that's a really shallow way to go through life, that you should go through life with open mind, open eyes, open ears, paying attention and try to learn from every situation that you can. And once I made that shift, I started to learn and develop and grow at a much more rapid rate. But I do think it's a rite of passage. I think most teenagers and, and young people think they have it all figured out. And it's not until you're older that you realize, man, not only did I not know very much then, look how much I still need to know now. I mean, it's, it's crazy at 41 years old, how much more there is for me to know and how much room I have to grow and to develop and sharpen my sword and master my craft. And yet 20 years ago, uh, I thought I had all the answers. So uh, I do think that's somewhat of a rite of passage that a lot of people go through, but that's probably the, the most cringeworthy are the times where I know there was wonderful information being presented to me, but I was just too stubborn and hard-headed to be accepting of it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. It's like the difference between the fixed mindset and, and the growth mindset. Exactly. So much opens up when you, you take on that growth mindset. And for someone that wants to work with some great tips, just that understanding the humanity of those stars. But if somebody wants to get into those inner circles or even just to understand better what it's like on the inside that maybe the average person wouldn't understand on the outside, what sort of advice would you give about that? Well, very similar to what you just mentioned between fixed mindset and growth mindset. Uh, another major shift I made in my life was from being outcome focused to being process focused. You know, when I was younger, very outcome focused. I wanted to work with big name NBA players. I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to make a lot of money so I could buy tangible items. And, and now that I'm older, those things are far less important to me. The journey and the process is first of all, so much more enjoyable, but secondary is how you get the outcome in the first place. And, you know, so someone that, that aspires to work with NBA players, my best advice would be keep that in the back of your mind. That is a wonderful goal to have and something to pursue, but don't be fixed on that because that's an outcome. Focus on the process. 
work backwards from there and come up with legitimate steps and goals that you have control over that will put you in a position to make that much more likely that you don't really control whether or not an NBA team is going to hire you. That's outside of your direct control, but you can work on yourself and work on your craft and make relationships and put yourself in a position that greatly increases the chance that an NBA team is going to want to hire you or that a player is going to want to hire you, but you focus on the process. And, and, you know, really when you, when you brush away everything else, there's only two things in this world we have complete control over, and that's our own attitude and our own effort. So if you put most of your time and attention and focus and heart and soul and love into your own attitude and your own effort, if you do that wisely and consistently, more times than not, the outcome will simply take care of itself. But as soon as you shift away from process and just worry about the outcome, I think it's short-lived and, and it's certainly not as enjoyable. At least that's not been my experience. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I heard similar advice from a guy that worked with big singers, you know, big names in entertainment. And he was saying, well, better option is to start with an unknown person. Mm -hmm. Because it's unlikely that somebody that's very well known or very famous probably has a whole team around them they've had for a long time. So, and it's much more rewarding to actually go in and find an unknown person and work your butt off with them and give them everything and see them blossom into something. Exactly. You know, uh, it's the difference between chasing and attracting. Work on yourself and become so good at what you do that you can offer so much value that you attract the type of people in your life that you want instead of trying to, to aimlessly chase after them. I mean, you need to, to work to the point where NBA teams and NBA players are like, man, we have to have this guy. We need him. He would add value to our organization. Or if a player says he would add value to my game. And that takes a lot of practice that takes a lot of reps again to go back to Malcolm Gladwell. I mean, this has been a great plug for his book and kind of that 10,000 hour rule. Uh, and I know that that gets bastardized in a lot of different ways, but I mean, the key component of that is you need to put in about 10,000 hours of intentional, purposeful practice to get really good at something. And 10,000 hours is a lot. That's why for most people, that ends up being about 10 years. So for me to think that I was quote unquote great at 20 was simply naive, immature, and foolish. I mean, I needed to go from 20 to 30, being in the gym every single day, working on my, my philosophy and learning new exercises and training methodologies and, and improving my leadership and communication. It, I mean, it took 10 years before I would be able to say, now I'm starting to get fairly decent at this. So uh, that's one of the things that I believe a lot of people unfortunately lack is patience. And I know I've struggled with lack of patience. I'm in, I'm impatient by nature, but I've learned to become better at it. That if you're graduating college and you're like, man, I want to work for an NBA team. It's like, okay, that is a wonderful goal to have. I hope you know that it's going to take you 10 to 15 years, first of all, to be good enough to deserve an opportunity to do that. And even then it's not guaranteed. You also have to make sure you're building relationship with the type of people that can open those doors for you. And now as I'm older, this is what's been so helpful having those mistakes that I've learned from as I transition into the corporate space because I've never had a corporate job in my life. And now companies from all over the world pay me to train and consult and speak but it's, it's a process. You know, it takes convincing. I'm starting in an, in an arena where I have no credibility, and no brand recognition. So I know that I have to build that up and that will take time. So I'd be foolish to think that, you know, in my first year of doing corporate speaking, you know, I'm going to be selling out arenas and being all over. No, that is going to take a long time. But now that I understand that process, 
I'm not in any rush. And I, I keep the, the focus on what I can control. I keep focus on internally working to show that I can add value so that when I'm, you know, 50, 55, then I won't be surprised if there are some major companies and organizations that want me to be a pillar of what they're trying to do. Because at that point, I will have earned the right to do that. Yeah, I love that you're actually, you're being forced now to put into practice what you preach all over again, making a transition into a new arena. And, and what the cool part is, it's really helped because one, it's tempered my expectation. I got into this saying, man, to build up my name and reputation as a very quality corporate speaker is going to take a few years to do that. And that's okay. So enjoy the process. Enjoy working on yourself and working on your your message and working on your ability to present and all those things as opposed to feeling rushed, which is definitely how I, I felt with my impatience when I first started. So I'm very thankful that I've been able to learn those lessons. But the other part is because I'm able to do that, things are actually happening quicker than I would have expected. That once I stay focused on the process, things start to materialize much quicker. So if it took me 15 years to build up, you know, an established resume and credibility and experience in the basketball space, I bet I'll be able to do it in a third of the time on the corporate side uh, because of what I've learned. And now I can put these things in practice, but still for those that aren't math majors, a third of 15 years is still five years. I just started a year ago. I still got to keep pushing and working and, and grinding for the next four years before I'd even expect to see, you know, a really healthy return on that. And I'm okay with that. In the in the broad scheme of my entire life, five years is is a very finite piece of time, and it is worth laying that foundation so that everything I do afterwards will be long lasting and will be very impactful and significant. I mean, I hope everyone's taking notes because this is such great advice and such yeah, it's so good to actually hear you going through the process yourself. It reminds me of a story. I watched a documentary about the actor Paul Newman. And Paul Newman, after all his success as an actor, he decided to become a race car driver. And he didn't do that till he was 46 years old. Oh. And he could have come in and he could have just bought, you know, he's extremely wealthy, he could have bought the best race car you can buy and got all the best coaches and just dive straight into it and figured it out. But he got the, the cheapest, you know, lowest entry-level racing car that you could get and just sucked at it for the first year but was completely humble he, he didn't uh, didn't want to be he didn't want anyone to mention his acting career he wanted to be treated like everybody else and he wanted to go out and learn the basics right from scratch and just slowly worked his way up you know just like everybody else to the point where he went on and became a champion race car driver he won the Le Mans 24-hour race at some point wow you know, an entire second career outside and had nothing to do with his fame and I just was in awe of the fact that he could completely put his ego aside and be really, really bad at something in the public eye, knowing that that's what it took to become the best. I love that. I'm going to have to watch that. It's very inspiring. And you hit on a, a really, really sound point, And that's one of humility. That's another area that I'd like to believe now I have much more humility than I know I did in my 20s where I reeked of arrogance. And, uh, you know, when you meet people that think they know it all and they already have all the answers and they go through life you know, kind of shaking their head and with folded arms, those are the worst type of people to be around. And, and again, I, I readily admit that that's how I was in my early part of my career. And now that I have the humility to know that, hey, I'm always going to be a work in progress, no matter how good I may get on the speaking and writing and consulting and training front, there's always room to grow and to develop. And that the moment you think you're done, you know, or done working on yourself, 
you're finished. So yeah, for somebody to like Paul Newman to, you know, ascend to the top of his industry, which is one of the hardest industries to get to the top of, and then have the humility to start over for something that he's very passionate about. I, I really love that. And that's, uh, that's a, a tremendous lesson for all of us to take, but humility. And this is, this is what I'm fascinated with because I have humility now, or I've, I've gained humility through a, a variety of life experiences, but I'm also an extremely confident person. But to me, that's a lethal combo when you're confident in yourself and your abilities, but you have the humility to realize that you're capable of flaw, you're going to make mistakes and that you have a lot more to learn. That's when you can really put that growth mindset into place and make big things happen. So I think that's really neat. I'm going to have to check that documentary out. I appreciate yeah, it's you called, sharing that. It's called Winning, The Racing Life of Paul Newman. Very, very good documentary. Awesome. Yeah, I think it holds a lot of people back, actually. As, just, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, there's so many people that are in jobs that they don't enjoy and they would love to go and do something they're passionate about. But most people never make the leap. And I think it is that ego play and like people don't want to be a beginner again. And the longer we go on, you get into your 30s. If you haven't learned a new skill in a while, you forget that actually you used to suck at everything. You didn't know how Absolutely. to walk at one point. Like everything was new at one point. Yes. And you've just forgotten what it's like to be a beginner and that that's actually normal. But if you haven't done it for a while and you start trying something and you're not used to sucking at something, it can be a real bruise on the ego. Oh, it absolutely can. So and I, and I love that watching again. that. You're 100% right. And I love watching that with my own children. See, I don't know when the, the ego actually comes into play. But as you just so brilliantly pointed out, I mean, when kids are really young, they do. They suck at everything. You never see a kid that's so young they're learning to walk ever just say, you know what? I don't care if I ever walk. I, I quit. Yeah. I'm not going to do this. this like, is you, you stick with, yeah, you stick with it until you figure it out. And I think we lose a lot of that grit, unfortunately, as we get older. And it, the other thing that that I'm always reminded of, which I'm fascinated by, you know, if you take uh, the typical school system here in the United States, you know, this will sound like a loaded question, so I'll answer it really quickly. But you know, you know how long it's appropriate to stay in the second grade a year. And at that point, they make you move up the third grade and then you can stay there for a year and then you need to move up. So in the school system, it's almost forced that you grow and you continue to move up. Yet as adults, how many adults do we all know that have literally been in the same place for the last 10 to 15 years? They've done nothing for their growth or development. They have quote unquote been in second grade for 15 years on end. And, and that's that sucks. I mean, I find for myself and most of the people that I've, I'm around and are in my inner circle, I am personally happiest and most fulfilled when I'm learning, when I'm growing, when I'm developing. And part of learning, growing, and developing is sucking at something, is going through the tough times of not being polished at a skill and having to learn something and experiencing failure. So it's funny that Actually, I'm happiest when I have some adversity, when I have some failure, when I have some sticking points, because then I'm able to stick through it and see it till the end. And then I know that progress has been made. And that's, that's I think, the real fruit that we're all looking for is knowing that we're growing and developing and improving and making progress. And you talk a lot about process. Can you take us through some of the process that you use like to take someone from good to great? For sure. Well, you know, it's funny. So the very first thing I did when I, and, and here's how this all came to be. I've been in the basketball world for 15 to 20 years, and I've had a chance to work some tremendous events, travel the world, speak at some prestigious clinics. And a little over a year ago, I was actually in another country and I was getting ready to speak at a really big time basketball event. And something inside of me just said, I'm really not that excited to be here, which was rare for me because I usually get super pumped up. I love being in front of people. I love being the center of attention. I love speaking about things I'm passionate about, 
and I just wasn't that excited. And I have a pretty keen sense of self-awareness. I was like, okay, that's a, that's a little bit of a red flag. I should be really excited to do this because it's a great opportunity with awesome people. That's a little bit of an issue. And then about a month later, randomly, a friend of mine reached out and said he works for a fitness company and they were going to take 200 of their top people and executives to Cancun, Mexico for a summit. And he said, we had a leadership speaker lined up. He had to back out. Would you like to come talk to our group about leadership? So it was going to be something a little different than what I was currently doing. And I said, hey, you had me at Cancun. Yes, I'll be there. And I went to Cancun. And when I got off the stage, I gave an hour talk on leadership. I mean, it was electric. I felt intoxicated. I felt like alive. And, and those two things kind of happening back to back within a month let me know that, okay, for whatever reason, for right or for wrong, I'm getting a little bit burnt out on the basketball side and it's time for me to take and, and move over and pivot to something else. And, and that was when that process started. So once I had the strong conviction that that's where I wanted my career and my life to start heading, then I sat down and was very process oriented with that. First thing I did was I started curating tons of content, going through old notes, blogs and podcasts and all of my files and pulling out every story and stat and lesson that I had on leadership and teamwork and culture, anything that I thought would be of value to the corporate world and just did this massive brain dump. Uh, that was step one. And then step two was having the humility to admit that I've never had a corporate job in my life. So I didn't want to make any assumptions on what I thought would transfer over to that domain. So I have a few friends that are in the corporate world and I sat down with them for their mentorship and said, you know, of the stuff I've learned, here's all of my content and biggest life lessons. Which of this stuff do you think most applies to the corporate space that I'd be able to add value here? So they were able to help me kind of hone that message. And then the, the third step in that process was now I need to get some experience. So I reached out to five or six companies that I had a good relationship with and said, look, I'd like to come give a talk. You don't have to pay me anything. I'll even pay my own way. I'm willing to do it for free. I just need an audience. And all I ask for in exchange is for you guys to give me some feedback on what I can do to be a better speaker, how I can polish up my content and my message. How can I turn this into something that would be more valuable and was able to do that. And, and the result of that three-step process is really what set me on the path to what I'm doing. And, and I haven't left that process. I'm a constant work in progress. I'm always learning new content and then workshopping it and trying different things. I've hired a few coaches. I have a writing coach. I have a speaking coach. I put my money where my mouth is. I mean, here I am trying to be a coach to other people. And I willingly acknowledge that I need coaches to help me become the best at what I'm trying to do. And, and that's been really helpful. And now it's a never ending process. The talks I'm giving now are much better than the talks I was giving a year ago, but I'll also expect that a year from now, those talks will be better than the talks I'm giving today. So I'm, I'm constantly trying to level up and to become better at what I do, both from a content and a delivery standpoint. And then additionally, trying to find other ways to scale the message and to be able to share this stuff. But that's kind of my process, you know, on more of a personal level, I'm very big into developing positive habits. I would never try and act like I've got this thing figured out and that I live a life of perfection because I don't. I have some bad habits just like everybody else does. Where I feel like I'm at an advantage though is I have the awareness to know that I have these bad habits and I'm addressing them and trying to, to make positive changes. You know, I, I really am focused on living in the present moment. So not getting too worried about the past and not spending much time worrying about the future, just living into now, you know, and those types of things, they keep me grounded and they keep me pouring in 
to what I'm trying to do. I'm so big into, into just the concept of time and that there's only a finite amount of this that we have, or at least that we know of. And I want to make sure that I'm investing and spending my time as wisely as possible. And as a father of three, I want a good portion of my time to be with my children and pouring into my children. If that means I have to make certain vocational sacrifices, I'm okay with that. That's a trade that I'm willing to make. So trying to, to find harmony between being a father, aggressively pursuing this new area that I'm, I'm entering into is challenging. And I have good days and I have bad days. There's some days where I'm a very attentive and present father, and there's other days where I'm not so much. There's you know some days where every word that comes out of my mouth on stage is money. And then there's other times where you know that wasn't my best performance. But what I've learned to do is give myself some grace. And I don't beat myself up over the fact that I'm going to have some bad performances and I'm going to have some bad days as a father and as a person. And then all I do is wake up the next day and say, today's going to be better and I'm going to make it better by continuing to stick to these types of habits. Yeah, great advice. What's your biggest edge right now? What, what do you feel is the biggest edge that you're leaning into? Biggest edge? You mean from a vocational standpoint? As I, far guess as it, this, I guess anything yeah, as you're uh, in your life or um, I guess probably the vocation is the biggest challenge right now, but what's, what's the thing that you're, you're struggling with or pushing up against a bit? Well, I think that my best asset is self-awareness and in full humility. Now, I'm amicably divorced. I didn't mention that before. And when I was going through a divorce a couple of years ago and was really having a hard time managing my emotions and feelings and communication skills, I went to see a therapist or a counselor or whatever, whatever word folks most resonate with. And I went to see a therapist every week for almost two straight years. And I give her full credit. Granted, I'm the one that had to do the internal work, but I give her full credit for shining a light on the fact that I had very low self-awareness at that point. And that's something that I've worked really hard on myself for. And I believe that I have much better self-awareness now. And I believe that's my biggest asset because now I know what things I'm good at and I know what things I'm not. You know, I know what things I love to do. I know what things I don't really like doing. I have so much of a better feel of what it is I need to be doing and when I need to be doing it, that that helps me create this harmony in my life. So for that, I'm, I'm very thankful. And then, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm proud of the fact that I've been able to blend humility with confidence, that I know there's so much more that I have to learn, but I also am proud of who I am. And I know that I've put in work already to deserve success. And that I know I'll continue to put in work to deserve future successes. And I, I think those are the things that I'm most proud of and are most helpful. On the challenge side, I'm still rather impatient. I, I know that I'm, I'm able to focus on the process now, but that is a challenge for me because something in, inside of my core wants things to happen faster than they are. So it's this constant tug of war between my brain that knows that I need to respect the process and take my time and my heart and my aggressiveness and assertiveness that is like, all right, man, let's get this thing going. You know, perfect example. I was very fortunate enough to sign a, a book deal, a publishing deal with a publisher, one of the big publishers here in the United States. And the book process takes a long time. Like the book I'm currently writing right now won't launch until January of 2019. For somebody that's impatient, that seems like it's I a mean, long forever. Lead. Seems like forever. <laughs> but in their experience with the type of book I'm writing to make sure that the content is done correctly and then have a, a pre-launch and be able to get the word out, that's what will be best. So that's, that's a, a constant tug of war. My brain agrees with them and says, yes, January 2019, let's roll. My heart says, man, I can have this thing finished tonight. Can we put it out tomorrow <laughs> morning? So it's, it's definitely a challenge. And you know, the, the concept of living present will always be a challenge. 
I'd be lying to you to say if there weren't times where my mind was occupied with the past and certainly times where I may have a little anxiety thinking about the future, but now I have triggers to put myself in place and say, okay, you're not living in the present moment. Let's get back to the present because you can't change the past and the future is not even promised or guaranteed. So really we're being very wasteful with our time if we put it anywhere other than the present moment. But that will always be a challenge for me. If I were to say that I was present every moment of every day, I'd be lying, you know, but there are times where I'm more present than others. But as I mentioned now, I at least have the awareness and the triggers to know when I'm not, and I can get myself back there rather quickly. That's great. I love your message. I love your enthusiasm, Alan. Where can people find you if they want to reach out to you or they want to hire you to speak at their event? My current one, I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you. You, you make this so easy because you're a great moderator and you lob me easy softballs. And as you can <laughs> see, I, I'm never short for words. So you do a great job of, of letting me just keep running, uh, flapping my gum. So I appreciate that. My website is alansteinjr.com, A-L-A-N-S-T-E-I-N-J-R.com. And I'm also at alanstein.jr. on all of the primary social platforms. Uh, I really love social media. Uh, it gives an opportunity to connect with and learn from people that I more than likely would never meet in person if it wasn't for social media. Uh, so I'm very active on there. And you know, if, if anybody listening just wants to, to say a quick hello or feels that I could add value or wants to share any of their experiences, uh, I'm all about connecting with people. Would love to hear from any of your listeners. Yeah, great. There'll be a lot of sports fans listening that'll want to reach out to you, I'm sure. Cool. So the last question we always ask, Ellen, is about the dark side. And it, it just reminded me, I read that book, Relentless. That I'm sure you've heard about it. Yes, sure yeah, have. Yeah, and he talks about the dark side and that and it, with a basketball kind of angle to it. And he talks about embracing the dark side. You know, the best players all have a dark side, but they learn to embrace it and channel it onto the court in healthy ways. I'm interested for you. Do you have a dark side that you have learned to embrace? For sure. I believe we, I believe we all do. And I believe it's having the humility to acknowledge that. And as you just said so perfectly, is, is to embrace that. I mean... I don't know that, that I have a dark side in the same capacity that, that Tim Grover mentioned in that book, that the dark side that a Michael Jordan or a Kobe Bryant has literally makes them killers and assassins on the court. But as far as the dark side overall, I mean, and I know this is not where you were headed with the question, but it's funny that I love stand-up comedy. I study stand-up comedy religiously because I think they're the epitome of being an orator. I mean, to stand up with a microphone in front of a crowd of people that are expecting to laugh is one of the hardest skills someone can have. And I've always studied them for to learn, not necessarily to try to make myself funnier, uh, but to learn from them on body language and tone and inflection and how you deliver a punchline and, and so forth. So I watch stand-up comedy all the time. And I will say that what I personally find the funniest is some of the darkest, most politically incorrect humor out there. I mean, stuff <laughs> that is blatantly offensive to most people, there's something about that that I find so real and so raw. And if you want to hear a really good belly laugh from me, you tell me something that's really politically incorrect and off-putting. And for some reason, I've always been attracted to that. And then like any other human being, I mean, I, I have dark and twisted thoughts. I have some thoughts that uh, I'm very thankful don't get projected on big screens in front of other people. But you know, as far as having a dark side to my soul that that makes me better at what I'm doing. I don't know that I necessarily have that, which is probably why I'm not Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. I love the uh, the comedy reference because I, I feel the exact same way. And I'm in New York at the moment. I'll go to the, the comedy cellar a few times, and it's literally that idea of going underground, you know, to talk about really naughty things. 
<laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, that's cool. That's a great, great answer. But you know what's what's really fascinating to me is, you know, I, I know in the last several weeks we've had several folks in Hollywood and even some comics, you know, that have come to light about some really awful and inappropriate stuff that they've been doing. So I'm not talking about anything like that. I think those folks, they really do have a dark side and they have a sickness and they have something that, that's awful. I mean, I, I can find humor in most things, even things that other people find unpleasant. But it's really a shame because, you know, perfect example, I, I was a huge fan of Louis C.K.'s comedy. I mean, I, I consider him on the Mount Rushmore of comics. I thought he was extremely intelligent. And it's not for me to judge another person. And obviously, I don't have, you know, all of the facts. But, you know, to find out that somebody that I really admired and respected is one of these other despicable people that has done some really bad things to women is really disheartening. And that's, that's a shame. And, and I'm very proud. And it's not for me to judge another human being, but I'm very proud of the fact that I don't have that type of dark side. I don't, I don't have it in me to do something that is as despicable and as disgusting as a lot of these folks have been able to do. And, and those, when, when you say the word dark side, that's kind of where my mind goes. And I do think in general, it's a good thing that these dark behaviors are now having a light shine on them and that a lot of people are coming out because I think that's a great step for the women that have been affected. Uh, one, to get some validation and two, to be able to move forward in the process of their own healing. And I think we're going to see a lot more come out. You know, it's, it's kind of like the, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. Now that people are seeing that, that you can call these folks out, people of high power and high stature, I'm, I'm actually glad that, that they're able to do that and certainly wish those victims nothing but the best. Yeah, it's a good distinction. I mean, that's why I asked this question, because one, I want to show that everybody has a dark side, but two, also showing that there's an unhealthy way. If you just ignore it and pretend you don't have one, it's going to come up and bite you. But there's also exactly. healthy ways to embrace it. Alan, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. I hope you'll come back when you launch the book and talk to us again. I would love that. It's been uh, so much fun talking to you. Likewise, I appreciate you. Thank you, Nathan. Cool. All right, thanks, Alan. There, but folks, my conversation with the wonderful Alan Stein. I hope you enjoyed that. You can check out Alan's website, alansteinjr.com. That's alansteinjr.com. As always, love it if you could share this episode around with your friends, maybe share it on Twitter, Facebook, and all the socials. I will love you forever. Thanks again for listening, guys. I'll be back next week with episode 52 of The Nathan Seward Show. That was The Nathan Seward Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. This episode has been brought to you by my friends at Unsettled. Unsettled is a 30-day co-working retreat experience for entrepreneurs, creatives, freelancers, and folks going through intentional transitions. They have incredible retreats all around the world, Portugal, Bali, Colombia, Nicaragua, just to name a few. I did Medellin in Colombia last year, blew my mind. A great bunch of people there, lots of really cool local experiences, beautiful office to work from, a lovely apartment. They organize it all, guys. So go to beunsettled.co slash Nathan, and I'm going to get $100 off your first trip. So do yourself a favor, check out beunsettled.co slash Nathan, and prepare for one of the best months of your life.